0: This is New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host, Carl Morand. Today I'm joined by Dr. Anne Elizabeth Mayer, author of the new book, Islam and Human Rights. She is currently a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. In the book's preface, Dr. Mayer says that it could more accurately be titled, A Comparison of Selected Civil and Political Rights Formulations in International Law and in Actual and Proposed Human Rights Schemes Purporting to Embody Islamic Principles, with a critical appraisal of the latter with reference to international law, evolving Islamic thought, and relevant state practice in the Middle East. Throughout the book, she makes that comparison in a way that is detailed, but still easily approachable by someone new to the topic. In this fifth edition of the book, she addresses increased pressures for human rights brought on by the Arab Spring, the efforts of Islamic regimes to use the human rights debate to their advantage, and the issue of human rights of sexual minorities in the Middle East. Dr. Mayer's book describes not only the history and evolution of human rights under Islamic law, but also addresses how these developments might continue in the future. Anne, thank you for joining us today. Uh, If you would, could you start out by talking a little bit about uh, your background and what inspired you to write this book?
1: Well, uh... I uh, have both a law degree and a Ph.D. in modern Middle Eastern history, and uh, I was combining these two, working on Islamic law in contemporary legal systems in the Middle East, and then I was invited to go on a trip. Uh, with other researchers from Princeton University to Sudan, uh, this was in the period, uh, after 1983 when the Nimari dictatorship decided that it wanted to, uh, try Islamization of the legal system. And I was there basically, basically to look at the impact of Islamic law on the economy, financial transactions, things of this ilk, and at that time um there was monstrous repression this is repression that gave rise to a popular revolt, very much like the Arab Spring results that we saw revolts that we saw in twenty eleven when we had an uprising against Mary out of fury and disgust at the level of despotism. But while I was there, I got sidetracked from looking at economic developments because I just bumped into a lot of people who were concerned with the human rights situation. And this was a human rights situation where existing problems were greatly aggravated by the introduction of Islamic law And I began to see how if a government is undemocratic to begin with, if it appropriates Islamic law, it can uh, undertake measures that are really destructive of human rights. And uh the people I spoke with were outraged about what was happening. They were Muslims, but they felt that Islam was effectively being degraded by its association with this corrupt military thug, Mary. And I just got interested in the whole idea, Islam and human rights. Uh if I had not been in Sudan in this period, um I don't know uh possibly I guess I might have developed the same interest, but it was it was really uh confronting the situation in the Sudan, talking with very intelligent, perceptive uh Sudanese who were strong supporters of international human rights law that I began to become aware that uh, Muslims were supportive of human rights and they were pitted against their own governments, uh, which were despotic in the way that they deployed Islamic law to crush human rights. And that was really the the genesis of uh, a lot of my later writing.
0: is the uh, the fifth edition of this book. Could you talk about some of the uh, major things that have changed uh, over the course of time that you've been updating it?
1: Uh, One of the interesting things is that when I started out uh, there were uh, countries and spokespersons for Islamic causes that would occasionally candidly admit their disgust with human rights and they would Uh, pretend that the reason they found human rights so objectionable was that human rights were Western in character and therefore offensive to anyone who was a devout Muslim. Uh, It's very interesting to me to see that uh, the way Muslims who are in practice against human rights have now become very hypocritical and I would signal uh, countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, as, as being particularly noteworthy in this connection, countries that, uh, formally spoke in terms of how Islam mandated approaches that were at odds with international human rights law, now pretending that they are, uh, very observant of international human rights law, very respectful of human rights, and speaking as though, uh, Islam was um, something that reinforced their commitment to human rights. That is, we've moved from uh, an era when people used to speak in terms of um, a culture, an Islamic culture at odds with human rights, to one in which uh, governments that are opposed to human rights, by implication, acknowledge the... Authority and legitimacy of human rights and feel that they have to pretend to support human rights even if they're using Islam in ways that uh, will undermine human rights. We, we've also seen development of new issues in the fifth edition of the book. I get into how uh, Muslim countries along with the Organization of uh, Islamic Cooperation the OIC have joined together at the United Nations in an attempt to make international human rights law incorporate the principle that um, defamation of Islam must be criminalized. and This is an attempt to extend their regimes of censorship from their countries into the West, Uh, In in theory, this should be all around the world uh, if they're making international law incorporate the principle that defamation of Islam has to be criminalized. But in practice, we can see that their sole focus is is on the West. And uh, this is a very interesting twist on the use of Islam against human rights uh, by countries that are pretending to support human rights uh claiming that defamation of Islam is incompatible with human rights and therefore the international legal system as a way of protecting human rights has to criminalize the the defamation of Islam. And this is um uh, something that has already had a lot of impact in the West. People are more and more um nervous about Doing things, saying things that could be construed as defamatory of islam uh this is definitely a new development, and then one thing that has happened that um really I couldn't discuss in earlier editions was uh the um the question of human rights for sexual minorities because the book is about comparisons between what is in international human rights law and the stances that have been taken by Muslim states. And until recently, the United Nations really did not pay a lot of attention to the human rights of sexual minorities. You can see little um, hints of more recent positions uh, in uh, some earlier measures, but the problem was never confronted head-on until quite recently, and now we have people at the highest echelons of the UN human rights system saying, yes, uh, we have to protect the human rights of sexual minorities, and this is uh, creating a, a big conflict, not only with Muslim countries, but also with some other countries that uh share the attitude that there is no human rights issue involved uh in the treatment of sexual minorities and uh OIC countries that are already quite numerous have been able to combine with a lot of countries from sub-Saharan Africa in particular to um galvanize opposition to this issue uh at the United Nations and In the fifth edition, I point out how how strikingly different Muslim countries' positions are today from what they were at the outset of the human rights system. At the outset of the human rights system, representatives of of several Muslim countries made very important and, and constructive contributions to building up our modern human rights system. And now we have the OIC Uh, collaborating with uh, some countries in sub-Saharan Africa to try very hard to stifle a development at the United Nations that is meant to expand the scope of human rights protections to encompass sexual minorities.
0: You mentioned uh, people having an apprehension towards criticizing Islam and Islamic legal systems. And in the beginning of the book, you talked about some of the issues that face uh, people studying this topic where some people will criticize them because if someone is critical of an Islamic legal code or of Islam, it seems to ignore human rights uh, issues in the West's past. And also from a cultural relativist point of view, people feel that you can't criticize another society that is, you know, just inherently different than yours. In your research and your work on this, did you run into any uh, pushback or any criticisms of your work because of uh, those issues?
1: Oh, yes. I've been the target of really uh, vituperative, uh, very hostile attacks on me for uh, the things that I've written. And um, these people are very, very Angry because uh, they have uh, firm convictions that there's a cultural relativist, uh, issue here where, uh, I, as someone who's outside the Islamic tradition, who's not a Muslim, who's not from the Middle East, uh, I could not have any basis, uh, for making valid criticisms of something that goes on within, uh, these cultures that people say, uh, is related to the culture. But uh I feel very comfortable uh standing my ground. First of all, as I indicated to you, I, I got the whole idea of doing this kind of work from listening to Muslims uh, when I was in the Sudan and realized that Muslims use international human rights law to critique these government policies and, and, and laws that violate human rights. And Over the decades, I've gotten into a stronger position because uh, so many Muslims who are uh, courageous, principled supporters of international human rights law have spoken out to denounce the cultural relativist position as absolutely inappropriate to use when we're talking about the policies and laws adopted by governments that are members of the United Nations. These are governments that by joining the United Nations have agreed to commit themselves to upholding international human rights law. Uh, And this is very different from meddling in the uh, belief systems and uh, cultural priorities of intact traditional societies. And uh, I was very pleased to see people like Shireen Abadi, the the wonderfully courageous Iranian human rights uh, attorney, speak out very forcefully to denounce the idea that human rights uh, critiques of government policies and laws uh, are in any way inappropriate to denounce the idea that cultural difference means that we can't have common standards in the area of human rights that we all have to uphold and respect.
0: Earlier, you mentioned uh, the OIC and representatives uh, from those countries initially being extremely opposed to human rights laws in general and then sort of evolving. Could you discuss the ways that uh, their approach has changed from completely opposing any human rights legislation and any human rights standards to almost seemingly working within the system to try and shape those laws to still cover their interests and meet their goals?
1: Um, I think I I spoke uh, maybe in in a very condensed form. Let me expand a little bit to make sure that I'm not misleading people. Um, I, I do, in my book, point out That at the very outset of the UN human rights system, uh, we do not see Muslim countries bringing in Islam as a problem that stands in the way of their endorsement of international human rights. So if we go back to the discussions, which have now been thoroughly researched and documented about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that uh, goes back to 1948, we do not see Muslim countries saying Islam is a problem in the area of human rights. We really can't accept these international standards. It is actually much... Much later later, um, after uh, Islamization started in the Middle East and um, people became much more oriented towards Islamic law than uh, uh, secular nationalisms, that we saw in the 1980s, people more and more saying, is there an issue here of Islam? being in conflict with human rights. And then what we have is Muslim countries joining other Asian countries like China. And of course, China is a secular country uh, that follows a Marxist doctrine, has nothing in common ideologically with a country like Iran or Saudi Arabia. But nonetheless, they got together and supported the idea that there were Asian values that were in conflict with uh, uh, international human rights law. And they started lambasting international human rights law as being too Western. That is, uh, supposedly, it carries the virus of of Western attitudes and ideas. And it was, according to them, entirely appropriate for them to try to block this virus by rejecting human rights and saying that uh, these were offensive Western concoctions that were being imposed by hegemonic force on their societies. But since then, uh, they've, uh, not completely, but to some extent, started moving away from this position saying that their Asian values are in conflict with the international human rights system. And more and more, they've been trying to get um, traction within the international human rights system and by pretending to support international human rights law, inject their own perspectives into international human rights law. And one example would be this whole idea of um, uh, saying that the defamation of Islam uh, is something that has to be criminalized under the international human rights law system. So we start out in the 1940s with Muslim countries acting as though Islam is not a factor. In the 1980s, as Islamization grew in a variety of countries, we see Muslim countries starting to say Islam is at odds with international human rights then in the 1990s we have this broader coalition with China and other asian countries saying there is a cultural clash between the uh, international human rights principles to western and uh, asian values and then more recently we've seen uh, initiatives to to try to work within the international human rights system saying that actually these countries are supportive of human rights, uh, but trying to inject elements into the international human rights system that will actually weaken it. So it it is a complicated history, and obviously uh, Islam didn't change character in these uh, decades. Uh, What happened was the political calculations of the regimes in, in various Muslim countries
0: do you think uh, going forward that the West or the U.N. can approach the human rights issue to better incorporate human rights in Middle East policy, given that particularly for the U.S. in its recent history, any interventions in the Middle East are often perceived very negatively, and they are perceived, as you mentioned, as sort of Western interference? What do you think uh, can be done going forward?
1: Well I think I think the United States has really um tarnished its reputation so badly by misguided interventions in the Middle East that the United States certainly cannot be an effective leader in pushing for the cause of human rights in the Middle East. Uh that's it's very unfortunate but um the policies of people like uh, George Bush and others who, who thought that military intervention and forceful imposition of Western human rights principles <clears throat> in the constitutions, let's say, of Afghanistan and Iraq uh, was the way to go, actually created a, a terrible backlash and uh, angered people who said that this is a um, a sign of uh the West, particularly the United States, using human rights in a way that serves its own political and economic goals. Uh, So I I don't think that the United States at the moment is in a position to play a very helpful or constructive role, uh, but uh, the development of appreciation for human rights doesn't depend on the United States. And if you look at what happened in the Arab Spring, um, the... Uh, people who laid their lives on the lines and in many cases died or were catastrophically injured in the course of the protests uh, in countries like Syria, uh, Yemen, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya uh, are acting basically on behalf of the cause of human rights. Of course, human rights law does protect uh, democratic freedoms and these people were... Uh, absolutely fed up with decades and decades of suffering under tyrannical, exploitative, cruel, uh, oppressive governments. And it wasn't the United States that set the the spark in Tunisia that made the Tunisians uh, revolt. And uh, once the Tunisians uh, were successful in chasing out Ben Ali, uh, we saw other uh, Arab countries say that, well, we can... Emulate the Tunisians and have our own revolutions. Whether these will produce excellent results in the short term, I don't know. the The news from Egypt today is is terribly discouraging. Uh, it seems that there are vested interests uh, in the form of a huge military establishment that mean that the the gains of the revolution may turn out to be Uh, illusory, at least for the time being. But these are all examples of cases where the United States wasn't the trigger. The United States did not have any way of uh, inspiring these uh, people to revolt. In fact, it it was uh, a grassroots democratic impulse from the people in this region. So it it might be a good idea for the United States to take a, a more modest role for the time being, and uh, let people within these societies sort out what they want their futures to be.
0: In the book, you talk about how uh, Islamic regimes in the past have used uh, Islamic law as a tool of oppression and to essentially maintain their base of power. Do you think the Islamic human rights issues that you discuss in the book uh, would continue to persist in a place where Islamic leaders are democratically elected, such as we've seen strong support for the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt?
1: Yes, um, that's that's a very uh, important issue. And I, I think that we will still have the question, Islam and human rights, but it will have a different character. And as Americans, we can certainly relate to this because we know that we had democracy and many protections for human rights in our country due to the wisdom of our founding fathers giving us our great Constitution and and Bill of Rights, Uh, but we did not, in fact, um, give rights equally to all people on our territory. Uh, I can remember back to 1964 when we finally had the civil rights law enacted. It took us long, long decades before uh we came to terms with the fact that black Americans, being a permanent minority in our society, would be unlikely ever to attain their full rights through the democratic process. And it was left to the Supreme Court to intervene first, uh, in, uh, the famous Brown versus Board of Education case and then a a variety of political circumstances including the death of President Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson taking up, uh, the cause of civil rights for black Americans to culminate in our civil rights law of, uh, 1964. So unfortunately, democracies by themselves uh, are not necessarily enough to uh, give everyone within the boundaries of a country human rights. It it can take a a long process of evolution before human rights are realized, but... uh, Democracies are nonetheless far more propitious for having human rights because if you have protections for things like freedom of association, freedom of expression, etc., you can mobilize people and uh, communicate the need to have better protections for human rights. So all in all, even though uh, I think it is a very worrying thing that uh, at the moment in Egypt, we see a confrontation between this military establishment and an enormously powerful uh, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which is very, very well organized, far better organized than any other political groups on the Egyptian scene. Although I think this is an unfortunate confrontation, and I think that uh, it's the Muslim Brothers' uh, get power. There will be lots of setbacks for human rights. Nonetheless, if there is a more democratic system, the chances of eventually working out protections for human rights in Egypt are are going to be uh, significantly enhanced. It just means that instead of the, the wonderful uh, uh, human rights uh, paradise that I think many young Egyptians were hoping for when they took to demonstrating in Tahrir, I'm afraid that we may only have a, a very slow, agonizing process moving away from the bad old days of Mubarak when no one had human rights towards the future, when more and more human rights will be enjoyed by Egyptians.
0: The uh, US history and the slow process and evolving nature of human rights here and how it, it wasn't something that all came about with the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. And also particularly in Egypt, how I think a lot of people thought once Mubarak was gone that a utopian society was almost, you know, waiting for them the next morning. Yeah. Do do you see any uh, in your research, any sort of small changes and slow progressions toward improved human rights, or is it something that's going to take major major change to happen?
1: Well, I, I think on the ground, it's going to cha- take major changes in uh, some societies, like like Egypt. Um, there are all sorts of reasons why the military establishment doesn't want people to have uh, human rights, but. Uh, there is so much more awareness of human rights now that we have the internet, Facebook, all these uh, social media, make it so much easier for human rights activists to communicate with uh, other people and to mobilize around human rights causes. And in the case of Egypt, we know that uh, it was the terrible beating and murder of a young man by the police that was really the trigger that set off the um, revolution. And how did people know about this? Well, it, it was uh, Facebook and they had pictures of uh, this young man's face after he, his face had been bashed in by the police. And uh, people started looking at that evidence of police savagery and it really had an enormous uh, psychological impact on Egyptians. They felt revulsion that a fellow Egyptian was being abused this way. And so the idea that the regime was absolutely unacceptable and had to be removed um, was conveyed so much more effectively than it would have been... Uh, 40 years ago, let's say, when it was been very, very hard to communicate with average Egyptians. And this is why we need to revolt. Look what is happening to an innocent young man who did nothing but somehow managed to offend the police. And uh, they they took away his life in, in this brutal fashion. So I'm thinking that ideas are very important and the ideas of human rights are very good ideas, and their their utility is pretty obvious. If you're living in a society where you have uh, have to deal with on a daily basis uh, a helplessness in the face of oppression and cruelty and exploitation, so I'm thinking with modern means of communication, human rights will be um, an ideology that will spread very fast. Sadly, also, um, I, I think that regimes that are frightened of human rights are aware of this. I, I know that Iran is trying very, very hard to emulate China in uh, control of the internet and social media, etc. I'm not a tech expert myself, and I'm not sure. How much you can do as a despotic regime if you want to have some access to the internet, uh, and social media preserved because it's part of being a modern society, yet at the same time block everything that could possibly, uh, lead to people's growing awareness of human rights. Exactly how you, you uh, organized censorship is, is beyond my capacity to envisage, but the very fact that there has been this, this big clampdown in Iran on the internet is a sign that they're frightened, and they're frightened with good cause because the Iranian regime is immensely unpopular with a substantial part of the young and educated urban population. And it does have to worry very much about the potential for an Iranian spring following the Arab Spring.
0: That uh, the issue of discrimination against sexual minorities was something that you've uh, first addressed in this most recent edition of the book. Could you talk about the issues that, uh, that that issue faces, considering that many of the sort of original human rights issues that have been under consideration for decades still have not been fully addressed or I guess fixed is the best way I can think to say it. Right. That, that there's so many issues that have lingered for decades. How is it is it possible to address new issues?
1: Well, I think it is going to be very, very Difficult, And I, I think the fact that it's difficult is borne out by what we see in that many human rights advocates who may, I suspect, feel that the rights of sexual minorities absolutely deserve protection are shying away from dealing with this problem. Because I think it's very easy to say, look, we still haven't even gotten equal rights for women, one half the population. Uh, We still haven't got basic principles established, like freedom of religion. Uh, We could be sidetracked. We could go into a dead-end street if we get into the question of human rights protections for sexual minorities, it may not just be politically practical to go in that direction until we have a broader based human rights culture. So I, I understand the reasons why I think a lot of human rights organizations are just saying, uh, in in effect, I don't know that they say this uh, openly very often, uh, I think they may uh, effectively assume that the protections for the human rights of sexual minorities have to be given lower priority. Uh, From the standpoint of some people, uh, I think the idea is actually the issues that come up here are part of the overall problems that you have in the area of human rights um, that unless you accept the principle of, Personal autonomy and the right of uh, individuals to do, as we say in the United States, to, to to have the right to pursue happiness in the way that is meaningful to them in terms of their own personal makeup. Uh, unless you have respect for that personal autonomy, it's very hard to have respect for any human right. So. Um, I, I can see that there are conflicting patterns there in the way people evaluate what priority to give to this this new question. Uh, it, it is interesting that uh, whereas Muslim countries uh, in general have uh, many similarities in their views. On the treatment of women, let's say, relegating women to second class status within the family, putting men uh, in control over women's lives, a shared pattern that uh, with modifications and um, uh, inconsistencies, we see in uh, Muslim countries, typically, when it gets to, let's say, the punishment for homosexual conduct, there's nothing like unanimity. And there's a general view that it's bad, that it should be criminalized, but they don't have um, a common conviction that they're are a set of principles that apply, um, that are clearly delineated in the Islamic sources on this question. So there's actually some more ambiguity and some more uh, wiggle room in this area of defining. Well, what is it exactly that has to be criminalized, and what are the standards we should use in this area? Uh, there's more. Uh, there's uh, more fuzziness, more confusion than there would be, let's say, in the area of uh, inheritance law, where the Quran unequivocally says that a woman gets one half the share of a man inheriting in the same capacity. That's a very clear rule in the Quran. But uh, there isn't the same degree of specificity and certainty with regard to the treatment, let's say of homosexual conduct so so there may be some uh ways that people can approach this this difficult problem that uh, take advantage of the fact that the standards there are less definite.
0: Things you brought up in your book and that I found particularly interesting and hadn't even considered in regards to the human rights issue, is the problem of translation and translating human rights documents from one language to another and incidences of statutes either being in one document, not being in the other, or being modified in such a way that their force or the implications are significantly different. Could you talk about some of the issues that have been raised from translating human rights documents, either from Arabic to English or English to Arabic?
1: Right. Well, I, I think that um, both Arabic and Persian, the languages that are relevant for the kind of work that I do, um, both of these languages actually are rich enough and um, have enough in the way of a developed Uh, legal vocabulary, that you could make pretty good translations if you had a motivation to make good translations. But when we look at the kind of Islamic human rights schemes that I'm looking at in my book, Mm -hmm. um, we see that there is a lot of slippage between what appears in an English human rights uh, provision and what appears in a provision that seems to replicate in some ways this English provision, but has been written in Persian and Arabic. And here the differences are not necessarily obvious because the authors of Islamic human rights schemes even while they're trying to degrade and undermine human rights they want their islamic schemes to look sufficiently similar to international human rights law to have some kind of plausibility and so obviously they they have to look at the international provisions and say this is very convenient we obviously don't want to have provisions for equality uh, in rights for women, let's say, as an example. But we don't want to make it too obvious. So what will we do? Well, we'll use a term that means um, equality and dignity. And that isn't obviously the same thing as equality and rights. But maybe people won't notice the, the differences here. And uh, then they will use a, a qualification like uh uh rights are afforded according to the law, which sounds okay because we think of rights as being set forth in the law, uh, but if you realize that what they mean by the law is actually Islamic law, not a neutral law that is respectful of human rights, but Islamic law as traditionally understood, uh, which in the traditional understandings has many provisions that are in conflict with human rights, when you understand that Islamic law is meant, then it has a whole different connotation. It means you're getting rights according to a law that, as we see in, let's say, a country like Saudi Arabia uh, is interpreted not to afford protections for many really central human rights. So there there are all sorts of uh, circumlocutions, misleading formulations, etc., uh, that uh, one notices when one compares English versions of rights provisions to some of the ones that you have in uh, particularly the, the Arabic uh, human rights uh, schemes that I've, I've looked at. But a, a person who was sincerely committed to human rights would be able <laughs> to uh, set forth uh, schemes of rights in these different languages in ways that would be protective of human rights. It's just that the authors of the Islamic human rights schemes, uh, whose work I'm studying, have a motivation to deny human rights, but at the same time to try to muddy the waters, to confuse readers, so they wind up with very confusing formulations, uh, for example, in some of their Arabic provisions.
0: Could you talk uh, for a minute about how, with the interactions you've had, with the uh, people in Islamic countries, how they balance or combine Islam and the issue of human rights, because I think for many people in the West, they have the notion that Islam and what we consider human rights standards are almost mutually exclusive.
1: Right. Well, uh, what, what's happened um, typically, and I, I, Obviously, I'm generalizing a bit here. What's happened typically is what uh might be a little bit like the something that would be a little bit like the Protestant Reformation, where you had uh people in the West after years of being told, well it's the Catholic Church that interprets the Bible. you don't read the Bible, you listen to what the Catholic Church tells you the Bible requires um uh, being challenged then by Protestant reformers who said, no, every Christian should have the right to read the Bible and study the Bible and learn from uh, the Bible. Uh, You have a similar development these days in Muslim countries, and it has a lot to do with the uh, enormous increase in the level of literacy. These societies used to be ones where uh, a relatively small percentage of the population was literate. Uh, and as people have become literate, they've said the traditional, traditionally educated Islamic jurists have always been the ones who told us what Islam required. And, uh, we don't want to be bound by what these jurists say anymore. We want to go back to the original uh text these texts being the actual word wording of the Quran and um the model uh set by the prophet Muhammad and we want to study the originals and derive our lessons from the original sources and as they've done this many people have said uh, we have uh discovered that there's a completely different way of looking at Islam Islam is not the vast uh jurisprudence that was developed in the medieval era, which reflects according to them medieval ideas uh Islam was a much more progressive religion at the outset, and it became um, what what it intended to do became subsequently obscured as um more and more medieval interpretations were placed upon the originals. And we've got to set aside these uh, juristic interpretations. That doesn't mean that they're worthless. There might be some very important insights that we could get from these medieval jurists. But we can't be bound by them anymore. We have to be free to go back and look with modern eyes at the text and let it speak to us. And those Uh, Muslims have uh, wound up with convictions, among other things, that the primary concern of Islam is equality and justice. And if you start with an understanding of Islam as a religion that aims at ensuring equality and justice for all human beings, then it's not that hard to work towards an accommodation of Islam and human rights.
0: What do you think uh, can be done in the West and particularly the U.S. to get people to have more of an open mind or get people to see that Islam is, as you say, based on equality and justice and that some of the abuses of human rights in the name of Islam are less, you know, they're not about the religion itself but about regimes trying to maintain their power?
1: Well, I. I... Um, I'm not entrusted with um, that task. Uh, that's really for Muslims to carry out. But I would just say in the West, it would be very good for people not to give too much weight to the most rabid and hate-filled uh, uh, people who attempt to represent Islam and here I would include some of the terrorist factions that have done so much to make Islam look ugly to people in the West. People should be aware that in addition to these very ugly strains in Islam, and I think we have to admit when we look at Western history that uh, you can find ugly strains in religion in the West as well, you have to make sure that you don't generalize from these um uh, uh, rather extreme and uh, bigoted uh, readings of Islam to characterize the entire religion as having these characteristics. The, uh, these represent the understandings of certain types of Muslims who have agendas that fit very nicely with uh, these uh Interpretations of Islam that are inimical to human rights, but a very substantial part of the Muslim population is much more open minded, much friendlier to human rights. Um, uh, and so I guess what I would just urge the West to do is to always uh, make sure that the people who are within the Muslim community who have constructive uh, things to say about how religion can mesh with human rights don't get ignored and that we don't place too much emphasis on the most radical and most negative interpretations of Islam when we talk about the religion.
0: Well, Anne, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk with us today. Uh, before we let you go, could you uh, just take a minute and talk about uh, what you're working on now and what what future projects you have coming up?
1: Um, well, I uh, am working on a um, book that is related to the Danish cartoons affair and um, looking at the the conflicting Western and uh, Islamic perspectives on this question of defamation of Islam. When I say Islamic perspectives, obviously I'm talking here about uh, the positions that have been taken by Muslim states and by the Organization of Islamic Conference. I'm not saying that these positions are intrinsically Islamic, but I'm very interested in how we will deal with these problems in an era when uh, Muslims, because of the growth in communication, uh, increasingly feel very distressed and threatened when they uh, hear about something like uh, a, a Danish cartoonist drawing what they see as a defamatory portrait of the Prophet Muhammad. And it's a very, it's a very tough issue to deal with, uh, wanting to be respectful of uh, people's religious uh, feelings, and yet, at the same time, recognizing the absolutely crucial value of freedom of expression.
0: It's very interesting, and I'd uh, love to talk to you about that uh, when that book comes out. Oh, great. (laughs) I'll talk to
1: you then. (laughs) Yes.
0: Thank you again for uh, taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Yeah, it, it was my pleasure, and I hope I didn't go on in, in too much of an academic and confusing way. <laughs>
0: oh, no. It was excellent. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Um, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. And thanks again to Dr. Mayer for taking the time to talk about her new book, Islam and Human Rights. You can follow New Books in Middle Eastern Studies on Twitter, where we are at New Books Mideast. And also on Facebook, as well as through our site, newbooksinmiddleeasternstudies.com, where you can find links to subscribe to our show. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes, which will help more people find our shows. Thank you for listening.